I have probably watched that Evangelion uh, video a hundred times, and it thrills me uh, even more today than, than ever because it's the greatest message in the world that God is so loving, that He's willing to die for your sins, and God is so powerful that all the forces of death and hell could not keep Him in the grave. Without the cross, our hope is superficial. It ignores the depth of sin and suffering in the world. But without the resurrection, our hope is brittle. It has no response for injustice and death. That's why Easter is so important. It speaks of the greatest love in the universe and the greatest power in the universe. And the message of Easter is this, that the most powerful and most loving person in the world is for you. And it's not just because of the message that came out on two days, Good Friday when Jesus died, Glorious Sunday when Jesus rose, but because it was a message he had been working on for 4,000 years prior to the cross and 2,000 years after the cross. So for 6,000 years, God's been working on a great story. In the 1960s, a movement called postmodernism arose, which says there's basically no meta-narrative, no overarching great story in history, that basically all of history is just a bunch of dots connected, millions of disconnected events, no destiny, no purpose, no central story. So nothing matters. Nothing matters in your story except the story that you want to write because you're not writing in relation to a larger story that obviously has great appeal in the sense that you can determine your own morality and you can determine what you value or what you don't value, but it does have its downsides. If you're not connected to anything larger than you, it's, it's produced a loss of hope in our culture. Once people decide that there is no great story going on in life, then they simply exist until the winds of fate or somebody stronger blow them away. Nothing left to endure except to go through these years of chaos. So what do you say to a world, to a culture that says there is no meta narrative, there's no great story going on in the world? Well, you tell them the same thing that the apostle told, told the people of Athens, Greece in the first century. Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens was named in honor of the goddess Athena, it was the capital where the 12 gods of mythology, Greek mythology, were worshipped. Now, in the 5th century BC, Athens was a powerhouse. All the great thinkers of the world, like Socrates and Euripides and Plato, where all the great thinkers gathered was Athens. But now this is 50 AD, and now it's just a bunch of wannabe philosophers that were gathering in the city, sort of like a bunch of fat guys watching football on Saturday afternoon, and all they're talking about is the great plays of former Super Bowls. They've got really nothing themselves to bring to the intellectual table. Paul said that when he was here talking with these philosophers, that his, the Bible says that his, he, was, he was grieved because the city was so full of idols. In this particular day, it was estimated there were 30 thousand idols in a city whose population was 10,000. So the proverb says you were more likely to find an idol 
in Athens than you would be to find a man. And that's what broke his heart. Because whenever you have a concentration of idolatrous worship, you have a concentration of evil. An idol is the very opposite of God, carries with it an interest in the occult, and this much interest in the demonic makes it very difficult for someone's mind to be awakened. There's a huge difference in the world between being slightly confused and to have made a decision to forfeit serious thinking about truth. Very difficult for that culture to be saved. G.K. Chesterton used to say, the result of ceasing to believe in God is not that one will believe nothing, it is one will believe anything. If you want to measure how far our culture is from God, more than ever, people are willing to believe that which is absurd. This was Athens. And that is why God sent Paul to the city to see if anybody was weary from absurd thinking. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So every day, Paul would dialogue with two groups of people. He would dialogue with those who had a Bible background, like you, many of you, uh, whether they were Jews or Gentiles that just had a copy of the Jewish Bible. And he would meet with them in the synagogue, and then he would go to the Agora, the marketplace, and deal with pagan businessmen who were among all of these philosophers. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So among the philosophers in Athens, there were two groups, the first of which was the Epicureans. They didn't believe in God. They believed that matter has just always existed. You would see this today, and you hear terms of secularism, materialism, matter is eternal, not God. Matter has just always existed, and it leads to a belief that since there is no God, there can be no plan for your life. There is no God shaping history. There's just, you're without purpose. There is no plan, no direction you should be going. And therefore, if this is true, there would be no life after death. And therefore, just indulge yourself. Do anything that your flesh wants because there is no life. This is it. Go for the gusto. Pursue pleasure and avoid suffering. Very hopeless philosophy. C.S. Lewis said it like this. If nature is all that exists, that is, if there is no God, no life of some quite different sort somewhere outside of nature, then all of human civilization will die out with the death of the sun. And so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, infinitesimally short in relation to the oceans of dead time which precede and follow it, and there will be no one even to remember us. So that was the Epicureans. 
Think about this. If your future is that of non-existence, then you're going to become one day just nothing and you just drift into oblivion. What is the purpose for anything now? It doesn't matter whether you live a kind life or a cruel life. There is no reward for kindness and there is no judgment for cruelty. No one's outside of this sphere that cares about what you do. The emptiness of a philosophy like that can be de- very devastating. I remember reading when uh, a bunch of French students first read The Stranger about Albert Camus, who talks like this in his There Is No Purpose, There Is No God. They had to be talked out of suicide by their professors because it was so hopeless. That's the Epicureans. Here's the Stoics. They believe there was a God, but he's impersonal. He's just an energy force. There is somebody who has created something, but there's no need to pray because he's not listening. So the only person that you've got in life is you. Uh, There's no reason to ask for help because the impersonal force has determined your fate. This commitment to Stoicism was really what fueled the... um, The Enlightenment period, which we call the Age of Reason, uh, in the 17th century where man began to reject God and put all of his hope in science and reason. In 1922, H.G. Wells wrote a book called A Short History of the World. He was so encouraged by man's ability to do life because of man's ability He made this prediction about what the future children of this generation would be be living in. He said, children will one day live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. Does that really sound like our world today for children? That was 1922. 1939 broke his heart, spirit. World War II began to break out and he saw the cruelty of man. He realized man wasn't good. And then by the time the war was over in 1945, he had lost all his hope, and he concluded with this piece of writing that the human story has come to an end. As never before, we're seeing a return to a secular belief that man can achieve whatever he wants apart from the honor of God. Many people believe that nowadays our hope is in science and technology. Margaret Amar wrote this piece in the New York Times not long ago. She called it the Church of Techno-Optimism. And in that article, she says that many technology companies in Silicon Valley boast that they can control the future. But any serious thinker will tell you that technology has not necessarily helped this world, as much as it's hurt it. I wonder how many lives have been destroyed by the technological access to pornography on the web, destroyed through tech. I wonder how many students in this very room or that are a part of this, the high schools of this city are in despair because of what happens to them when they interact on social media. That's technology. It leads to despair. And from what we could tell, all of the violence that 
raged through the cities of America last summer. All of the violence was coordinated by technology. Despite the, the horrors of World War I, H.G. Wells said there is hope because if man just gets more knowledge and more science, he will not repeat World War I. It's, <clears throat> you know what broke his heart? World War II. And he saw that the most sophisticated people on earth at that time were the Germans. They invented the university system. They had all tech, all science, all knowledge, and they created a war machine that killed 11 million people with their knowledge. It's understandable why the Second World War would have broken his spirit. And from every recent study, it's understandable why Generation Z in our culture also has a broken heart, the most pessimistic generation that's ever lived. So what do you tell Generation Z? Well, you tell them the same thing the Apostle Paul told Generation A. You tell them about the greatest man who was part of the greatest event in the history of the world, even though they may mock your answer. Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I love the word, uh, the description they give of Paul here. They call him a babbler. Um, comes from a Greek word which means seed picker. It was a description of a type of bird or many birds that really didn't seem to have a plan when they would just flutter and fly from place to place in the yard, picking up seeds and taking them from place to place. There was no pattern to their seed picking. And so Paul said, or the philosopher said, Paul, this is what you've done. You've picked up a little bit of religion here and a little bit of religion there, and you've just made a brand new one. And that's not true at all. The cool thing about Christianity is it's one primary, major, linear story. And you can look at all the other world religions and all the other philosophies of our day. They're the hodgepodge ones, exactly like what was happening in Athens. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about what? The latest ideas. They were seed pickers just putting together new beliefs. In the late 1960s, Harvard scientist Harlow Sharpley said there were five things that he believed that would one day destroy the world. The fifth on the list was boredom. People who are disconnected from God become bored. So they search for meaning in every new idea that comes along, and the more radical, the better. Doesn't matter if it's unclear. Illogical, unreasonable, as long as it's different. Even though these people laughed at Paul's teaching, they wanted more of it. They took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. The Areopagus was the place where the city council met, sort of a control of free speech. They determined what ideas would be permitted 
in the city and what ideas would not be permitted, and so they need to evaluate Paul's teaching. I love the picture of the Apostle Paul in this place, little short Jewish rabbi, now converted to Christ, ascending a 512-foot-tall hill to the top called the Areopagus, where there he was walking with all of the leading thinkers of the day, and when he got to the top, he had the courage to tell them about Jesus. This is really why I'm glad you're here today at Easter, not to hear another message about the resurrection, but to say, do I believe this so much that I would know what to say if I were invited to the top of the Areopagus or to somewhere in my university or my job? Could I clearly say, this is why I believe there's hope in no man but Jesus Christ? What would you be speaking about if you were there in, in Athens? Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. This is Paul's third speech in the book of Acts. And it's his best, in, in my point of view, because he's, he's not dealing with people with Bible knowledge. He's dealing with pagans. He's dealing with those who were, have no church experience at all. So he's got to come up with a new strategy. He's got to speak secular. And so he says, i got to find a point where we can all agree. And he says, I think we can all agree that we're all religious. And I know that everybody in this room and everybody in this city would agree in some way we're, we're all religious. That is, we all want to be connected to something, some spiritual connection beyond this, this city. Even people who have very little knowledge of God are religious. Almost in this generation with so much scientific proof of the brilliance of design that if we were even a mile closer to the sun, we would burn up a mile farther away from the sun and we would freeze. 93 million miles is the perfect distance and we tilt at 22 and a half degrees on our planet. Almost everybody agrees there's got to be some designer in the hundred trillion cells that make up your body. Don't know who he is, some people say, but there's a designer. We're all religious in that standpoint. Then we're all religious into the fact that when something is done wrong to you, you protest, that was wrong. Why did you say that? Because you're appealing to some moral law that says what you just did to me was wrong. Why do you think there's a morality that says anything is wrong? Because there is morality somewhere. There's a moral lawgiver somewhere. And I think another proof of the existence of God is just the existence of music. I think even irreligious people, when they're going through a tough time, the one thing they want to do is they want to listen to music because it takes them, it's transcendent. It takes them out of this world beyond to a place that they don't even know what it is, but they just know it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's comforting. We as believers know that that's God. So Paul came to Athens to tell these people who writes the songs. And it's not Barry Manilow. It's the Lord. And he says four things about this God. First, he's the maker and ruler of the world. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. So Paul said, I don't care how close you feel to your 30,000 gods. They don't exist. There's only one God. Only one God in all of the world. And it's the one who created the heavens 
and the earth, and he doesn't live in little temples. People love temples. They love little confined spaces where they could put God because he's more manageable. He's safer. He's not majestic and glorious and holy and fiery. He's small. You can sort of move him around where you want him to be. He's like a good luck charm. You don't really love your good luck charm, but you just want it around. Second thing Paul said about this God is he's the giver of life. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else like coffee. Verse says that God is self-sufficient. He's the one who gives us every single thing that you possess right now. And we honor him. So why do we come to church? We honor him by acknowledging our, 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 our dependency. That's why you're here. We applaud God to honor our dependency on his sufficiency. Yuval Harari wrote a book called A Brief History of Tomorrow. And in it he said... In ancient times, people turned to God because they knew they couldn't control their world. But modern man increasingly believes that he can control his world apart from God. You know one of the reasons that Christianity rose so quickly during the early days of the Roman Empire? It was because of pandemics. Pandemics would go through urban areas and take out life after life. And Christians had a hope in something beyond. There is a historian named Kyle Harper, and he, he's written about the ancient pandemics. And he says this, that the Christians believe this life was always meant to be transitory, passing, not permanent. And we're just part of a larger story. What was important to Christians was to orient one's life towards the larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. You know, when the pan pandemic first began to spread, and you remember, you talk about the grace of God. You remember this time last year, uh, you know, you saw me, but I didn't see you. You know, we were all looking by way of uh, computers and, and uh, cell phones at each other, and we were down for 28 Sundays. And by God's grace, he's allowed us in a year to come back. That's a mercy I'm so grateful to have the chance to worship you, and I know you can sense the difference in the gathered church. So when the first, you know, began to spread with COVID, people were really reminded of the transitory nature of life, and there, was, there were a lot of internet prayer meetings. There was this seeking of God, but that, as with all crises, sort of went away pretty quickly. As people begin to get their hope only on one thing, the vaccine. And I am grateful for that thing. I'm so grateful. And my mom, I got to take her out this week. The first time I got to see her in one year. And I took her for fried chicken and macaroni and cheese and pecan pie because she had both of her vaccines. I'm grateful for it. But 
I still believe that right now there's a vast number of people in our country that believe that as the pandemic ceases, all is well, as if life is no longer transitory. Do you know how many people, have you, did you see the number from yesterday? 2,353 deaths. Not COVID. People that died from heart-related disease. You know how many people are going to die today from that same cardiovascular disease? 2,352. You know how many people tomorrow? 2,300. And every day, 2,300 people. 400 people today across the U.S. will die of accidents, some type. Life is transitory. I got tickled a few weeks ago when the Vaccines were becoming more available, and Krispy Kreme announced that, you know, if you have your vaccine, you can get a donut every day for the rest of 2021. And I'm just thinking how cool it would be to put on their marquee out there, 2,352 people die every day of cardiovascular disease. Probably not good for marketing. Listen, I understand that it would be depressing to just look at the numbers all day of like I just did, of, of people who died. But a far, a far worse scenario would be forgetting, forgetting, forgetting that life is transitory. It's always going to be passing. That you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. Because no amount of knowledge and technology can prevent disease and save the environment, stamp out war and famine. We need God every step we take in this world and the, to get to the next world as well. The third thing that Paul said about the Lord is he's the governor of civilization. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. If you're grateful for uh, living right now in the 21st century, I think it's a pretty good gig. And I like where I live. If you, that's God's choice. That's cool, isn't it? Live here and now. That's His choice. All cultures. God determines when and where people live. And He, he placed them at times and places for one reason. That in those environments at that time, they would know Him. God did this so that men would seek Him. And perhaps reach out for Him and find Him. Though He's not far from each one of us, right now, he is one prayer away from changing your life. That's how close he is. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Life can look like a tangled web, but it's not. Very orderly, very linear in God's point of view. I see Dr. Keith on the front row. If you ever watched him perform surgery, you probably would be frustrated that he's not more uptight in the OR but he knows what's going on in the OR. We're scared because we don't know about that stuff. God is not scared. He's drawing all the world to him through what looks like chaos. And he's just drawing everybody into a relationship with him. Out of the pandemics and out of the crisis and disease and accidents He's drawing men and women to a relationship with himself. You're not a bunch of random atoms that collided together. You were created to know God, and he loves you. 
And he knows everything right now that you're feeling. Right now, he knows everything that you're feeling and thinking. Every millisecond of the day, he's aware of everything in your life. But despite all of this proof of a glorious God, many people don't know him. Because seeking him would require that you let go of idols. And would admit that you've been believing the wrong thing. You would have to admit that. Paul told him that in verse 28, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. You know, when you first travel to a place like India, it's amazing when you see idols on every street, every street corner, in every home, and you just wonder, why would people do that? Why would anybody make a small version of God when you could just go outside and enjoy the real thing? There's a reason for that, and the answer is in the question itself. Why would you create a small version of God? Because you want a small version of God. We love a small version of God. People love to reimagine God because they can create a God who only comforts, a God who agrees with them. Listen, if you worship a God who never disagrees with you, then you are merely worshiping an idol. If you follow a God who never says your behavior is wrong and your beliefs are untrue, then you simply are creating a God that you've created and a God that you have programmed. And finally, Paul said that God is the Savior and judge of all mankind. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, the idols, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So, when God says in verse 30, all men are to repent, he's telling you, he's commanding you, that everybody in here, the will of God is to admit that you're flawed. To admit that you have rebelled against God. You'll never know God if you will not repent. God commands you to repent. Because you have sin in your life. C.E.M. Jode was a uh, an atheistic professor uh, and a socialist in the early part of the century. And until he met Christ, he met Christ after World War II. But until he met Christ, he believed that man's primary problem was his environment. He said, he believed and he taught that if you could change a man's circumstances, that man would live right. World War II proved him to be wrong. And that led him to discover that man's greatest problem is not his environment, but it's what's inside a man, what's in his heart, sin. And he would later write, interesting that he would write this over 60 years ago, it is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed. 
our sin was so great and we stained, were stained so deeply that the only thing that could remove it was the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he died to pay the penalty for every sin in this room. And he rose from the dead as a declaration that if you would say yes to him, that his blood is able to cleanse anything that you've ever done. That's why we need the cross and the resurrection together. And again, the verse we read, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It's a very convenient thing to say that we don't really know who to believe. We don't know what religion is right. But here Paul says the day of ignorance is over because we do know who is right. The man who left the grave is the one that God will use to judge all of the world. By Christ rising from the dead, he proved that he's the only person who can take us to God. I love what C.S. Lewis says. One of the reasons I believe in Christianity is it's a religion you could not have guessed. It is not the sort of thing that anybody would have made up. Paul spent his whole life trying to reach Jews. Let me tell you the one way that you don't reach Jews is to tell them that their Messiah died like a criminal. If you want to reach people, you don't say that. God died. Not a very impressive God. And then you also don't tell Jews that a man rose from the dead because the Jews said it's impossible. They believed there was going to be a national resurrection of the nation at the end of history, but they did not believe that any man could ever rise from the dead in the middle of history, and those were Paul's two claims. He would not have made it up unless he saw the risen Christ. God is writing a great story. Jesus Christ is the greatest person in that story. And because of the greatness of his death and the greatness of his resurrection, he has the authority to end history and to judge all the nations at the end of time. Listen, without the resurrection, there is no light at the end of darkness. Without the resurrection, there, there are no, there are no, there's no laughter at the end of tears. Without the resurrection, there is no day of justice at the end of injustice. What hope do you have? Let me just ask you this. Why would you believe that you are going to live forever if you don't know of one person who left the grave? The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. And he'll give life to everyone who follows him. And not only is he going to make us new, but he's going to make the earth new. No other religion teaches that. This earth will be made new. At the end of God's great story, the resurrected Christ will judge all those. The resurrected Christ will judge all those who have written their own story and refused God's story. But today, however, is not a day of judgment. Today is a day where you say, God, I want to be part of your story. The greatest hand that held the nails of the cross rose from the dead and that hand is reaching through this roof right now to you. And the most important decision you can ever make is to reach your hand to the hand of Christ, the resurrected Christ, and say, Today, with all that I am, with all that I've done, I am holding under your hand. I give my life to you. Let's pray.
Father, we imagine right now the great hand of Jesus reaching out of heaven to the people of Japan and Korea, to the people of Istanbul, to the people of Spain and France and England. To those of us on the East Coast, we see the hand of Christ reaching from heaven all across the Midwest to California, the hand of the very patient Jesus, the very powerful Jesus reaching for anyone who would say, I believe, I repent, and I come. I pray today, God, you will produce faith in the hearts of these who have listened. My words are inadequate. They have no eternal power to change the heart, but you, you do, God. So, Holy Spirit, come. Not just open the roof. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. Everything else is hopeless but the resurrection. Would you please say yes to Christ today? Yes to Jesus. He will save you. He will cleanse you. As the band sings, would you say, yes, Jesus, I surrender it all. I come to you. I give you my life. Say yes to Christ. We'd love to talk to you at the end of the service if we can be of any help, any assistance. But right now, would you just talk to Jesus? Say, today I say yes to you. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.